everybody. <laughs> Welcome back to this week's episode of Cake Bites. With me on today's episode is Warren Davis. If his name doesn't necessarily ring a bell, you may recognize a little title he worked on called Hubert. I had so much fun getting to sit down and talk to Warren at the Let's Play Expo in Dallas over the summer. We talked a lot about Hubert, obviously, but I'm excited for you guys to listen to everything that Warren had to say related to games or not. So without further ado, here is Warren Davis. When was it like the first time you saw yourself in film? Um, the first time I saw myself was on a big screen. I did a feature film, as an, like an independent feature film in Chicago, and I was one of the leads, and it got screened at uh, the Art Institute. So, I mean, it was like a major big screen, and it was weird. It was just weird. Yeah. Um, but I've, I also, <laughs> I've also been with friends of mine who are in movies, uh, gone to see the movie with them, the first time they've seen themselves up on the big screen, and that's been fun. Um, but yeah, it's it's just weird. It's uncomfortable. Sometimes I, I watch myself and I go, oh, I'm giving a good performance. I, I, I'm i okay with that. And then other times I'm watching, I'm going like, oh, God, you know, I just look horrible. I just look absolutely horrible. I, it, but you just have to suck it up, you know, because that's your job. Yeah. Um, you know, you don't have to like it. You just have to suck it up. Uh, I know actors who just never watch themselves. They just can't do it because it, it bothers them too much. Yeah. Not, I've heard, I, I've heard of some that have never watched anything they've ever been That's in. right. And yeah. I can't, I feel like that would be so, I feel like that would be difficult. Well, I learn from it. You know, like if I see myself and I feel, okay, you're doing something weird or you're not aware of the camera in some way. So I, I learn every time. Uh, every opportunity I have to watch myself, I will watch myself and how, no, no matter how painful it is, <laughs> I will watch myself and then learn something from it. <laughs> and you said you acted before you worked in games and did yeah. anything with games, right? Yeah, because I started, I was uh, in college and uh, I never had any desire to be an actor. And uh, when I was in college, a friend of mine, uh, I was doing radio in college. I was, had a radio show. And then a friend of mine wanted to start doing like radio comedy bits. So we did that. And he was interested in acting. Okay. He dragged me to an audition for a play and I got, I got cast. So here I've like never acted in my life didn't what know anything about it. It was called The Ritz by Terrence McNally. Uh -huh. Really funny play. Very funny play. It's about a, uh, a guy. I mean, it was on Broadway. Oh, it, wow. it was about a guy who was, uh, who was like a witness to a, a mob murder. And to get away from the mob, he hangs out at a gay bathhouse in New York City. And he has to just sort of like uh, lay low. And then, oh, and then you know, like the mobster finds him. It's a, it's a farce. It's just a hysterically funny play. And it was made into a movie, by the way. Oh, ever, really? Yeah, in like the 1960s. But it was originally a stage play. Anyway, I had so much fun doing this. Uh, and, it, and it was the curtain call that was really the best part. You came out, you did the stuff, and you were just being silly. And then you came out, and you took a bow, and the audience is applauding and throwing roses at you and shit. <laughs> it's like, wow. It's I like could I, learn to like this. So I could get used to it. Yeah, I can get used to this. <laughs> So, uh, but I only did, I, I didn't study it really, I, and uh, I, that was in my uh, undergrad, and then I, I went on and I got my graduate degree, but 
I always did community theater. Like, a, like wherever I lived, I would find a community theater group mm -hmm. and, and I would do plays, again, just for fun. I yeah. never took it seriously. But it was when I quit my first engineering job that I uh, moved into Chicago and I said, I'm going to start studying at Second City. I had seen some Second City improv comedy shows and I thought, I can do that. So I, I asked where you learn this improv comedy thing and they there was only one school at the time that was teaching it and yeah. I, I started studying there and it was while I was a student there that I was un unemployed and I looked in the Sunday paper <laughs> and I got the job at Gottlieb so all the time uh, uh, I was developing Cubert I was taking improv classes at night and uh, when I was done with the, it was a one-year program mm -hmm. and when I was done with that one-year program which probably would have been around the fall of 1982 which is just about when Cubert was getting um, produced and, and, you know, rolling off the line, uh, I finished my, my studying and uh, got together with some of my classmates and we formed an improv group and we would do shows around town wow. at different clubs. And I think we did that for about a year. And then I was kind of got tired of the improv scene and I wanted to learn a real acting technique. And there was a place in Chicago called the Lois Hall Studio. Mm -hmm. And it was a two-year Meisner Technique program, and I, I joined that. So, uh, what type of time commitment was that for you over the course of two years? Uh, it was, I think, once a week. It was oh, a wow. once a week class. But you you know you do some work in between, either studying lines for scene or something. But mostly it was just yeah, the, mostly just the class. And I do remember rehearsing with scene partners outside of class. You know, we'd get together between classes to work on scenes. So yeah, it wasn't much of a commitment. Um, and then I think I was also doing theater. I, you know, I mean, I auditioned for plays and would do plays. Yeah, just around in, in Chicago. In Chicago, yeah. And I was doing that all the time. I was uh, making games my entire time. Did you move to Chicago for an improv opportunity? Or yeah. What? So I, my job that I had out of school took me to Illinois because I went to school in upstate New York. Okay. My, my first job was with Bell Laboratories in, uh, in sub suburban Illinois and Naperville, Illinois. And... I enjoyed it for a while, but that job had me traveling a lot. Yeah. So I'd be there for a couple of months, then I would go someplace for more months. Then I'd be back for a few months and then travel again for months. And I kind of got tired of not having a home. Yeah. Um, and they had given me a sort of a side job once where I was doing some uh, sp early speech recognition work in a research and development group that was uh, fun. And but then they pulled me out of there and put me back on this other group that had me traveling, and I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to travel again. And but that was what they assigned me, and I quit. First of many times, I quit a job because I wasn't <laughs> happy with what they were asking me to do. So that when I quit it was September of 1981, and I had been going into Chicago on the weekends, and that's where I went to Second City shows and learned about Second City. And I said, you know what, I'm going to go into Chicago and I'm going to start studying improv. And did you know at the time that Chicago was a mecca for game development? No, no, not at all. Because I'm not sure if people realize that generally yeah. either, that modern day pinball was developed in Chicago by one person. Mm -hmm. and, and as a result, I mean, you had Gottlieb, Williams, I mean, everybody, Stern. Was, everybody was there. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, what had happened at Gottlieb was 
you know, they were a little late to the game. You know, I, I think everybody else uh, was, even, even the big pinball manufacturers were making video games. Yeah. But Gottlieb, um, which was a family-run company until about 1977 when they were bought by Columbia Pictures. So Gottlieb is now owned by Columbia, and um, they decided to start a video division uh, in the late 1970s. I, their first thing, they licensed a couple of Japanese games, so they didn't have an in-house team making games, and I think that was sometime around 1977, 78, something like that, maybe 79. Um, it was the late 1970s. They licensed uh, two games. Uh, one was called New York, New York. And the other one was called, I can't remember. Back in your brain. Yeah, I, I, it'll come to me later. I, yeah. I, I have it written down someplace. But uh, they have, there were two games, and um, you know, I don't think they did particularly well. But... At some point, Gottlieb decided to have an in-house team, and so they hired um, uh, two guys to start this team. One was Howie Rubin. He was the VP of Business Development, and the other was Ron Waxman. He was the VP of Engineering. And they had a secondary plant. So the main plant was in North Lake, but they had a secondary plant in Bensonville, which is right behind O'Hare in this industrial park, uh, kind of a nondescript building. It was a little smaller than their main plant. And there were some offices in there, and they started up a, uh, a video division. Wow. Uh, now, I wasn't part of it at the very, very beginning, because um, they, had, they had been going for maybe a year, maybe two. They were working on a couple of different things. I remember there was a, an Apple II-based game called Quizimodo that was like a quiz game. Okay. And there was a pin, pinball game with a video monitor in it called Caveman. That so that was pretty unique. I think it was the first time a video monitor had been put in a pinball. Um, and, I, and I believe they made those. They, that, was, uh, that was produced. And they also hired a guy named Tim Skelly who had a track record. He was like a superstar. Yeah. He had made a whole bunch of games for Cinematronics that were big hits. And they needed, I guess, a kind of guru to sort of shepherd this new fledgling group in, into, uh, you know, Existence. to sort of guide them, you oh, know, yeah. yeah. So uh, Tim was hired just to do a game. Uh, that game became Reactor, which is actually on the floor here at, <laughs> at uh, Let's Play. Uh, and uh, I got hired in January of 1982. And so, you know, this is after Pac-Man. This is after Donkey Kong. Um, and I'm hired, you know, knowing nothing about video games. And, Were you uh, a programmer? Was that yeah. That was what you did prior. That's right. So my master's, I have a master's in uh, electrical engineering um, with a, you know, sort of an interest in computer programming. So I, I was basically a hardware slash software engineer at the time. I'd been doing some hardware engineering as well. Um, once I started in video games, I just became strictly a software engineer, and that was fine by me. Um, but um, January of 1982, Reactor was just sort of, I guess in the midst of development. Mm -hmm. So Tim, Tim was there. There was a handful of programmers. Uh, maybe Jeff Lee was the only artist. I, I don't know that there was another artist working on video games. He pretty much supplied art for every game, I think. <laughs> Tim Skelly also was an artist, so he kind of did his own art. So there were some games where, where the people did their own art because they could. But um, the few programmers there... Um, yeah, I, I don't even remember the number, but it was very small. And it was a, kind of a think tank, kind of a big open room. It wasn't cubicles. It was just sort of tables. We didn't have enough development systems to go around. We had to share them. 
it was an interesting time. And, and Howie uh, and Ron were both characters. Uh, Ron, very large, rotund guy with a very <laughs> gruff voice and demeanor. And just, you know, you, you know, he would look at you and you thought he hated your guts. But, you know, he, he didn't, you know, necessarily. Uh, but it, he, he didn't suffer fools, that's for sure. But he was a sweet guy. Um, and then Howie was just crazy out-of-the-box thinker. Howie was a guy that would come in in the middle of the day and say, hey, everybody, stop what you're doing. We're going to go play football in the plant. Because the plant was empty. There was this big manufacturing plant that wasn't being used. Just all this empty space. So it was a big building, as most of these buildings were. All of the, you know, Williams was the same way, Gottlieb's main plant. They had a big manufacturing facility where they could set up production lines to build the machines. And then they had, like, off in a corner, they'd have a set of offices. So we would, obviously, our offices would be, you know, in the building, but separate from the plant. But he would, you know, how he would come in and say, hey, stop what you're doing. We're going to throw the football around. So that's what we would do. Um, and it was a great time. So then what happened was, and, and I worked as a junior programmer on another game. I was sort of a supplemental programmer to another guy who was working on his game. I learned a little that way. And, Did that uh, game release? No, that name never got released. Although, a little side note, it just, like a year ago, they found the ROMs and they recreated it into a cabinet and is sitting on the floor at the Galloping Ghost Arcade in uh, Illinois, outside okay. of Chicago. Uh, Doc Mack and Jeff Lee, who was the graphic artist for it, and Tom Alanowski, who was the programmer, uh, all worked together to, uh, to make that happen. So they wow. actually, there's a working cabinet of this game. Did they give it a name? It was, <laughs> it was originally called uh, Protector, I believe, was the first name. Uh, and then when that didn't test very well, they put it out with a different name, Guardian. And when that didn't work, they put it out with another name, Video Man. And its final name, which always puzzled me, was Argus. So <laughs> I used to call it ProVidGuard Argus because, you know, it's just the name. And the name didn't seem to matter what it was. It never tested that well for some reason. Anyway, but they recreated it last year. Anyway, so, we, uh, so after I did a few things for that game... Then it was like, well, make your own game. And it was no like, pressure. okay. <laughs> well, there really was no pressure. That was the thing. It was oh. just like, make a game. And that was the environment we had. There was no pressure. It was just play. Yeah. Do whatever you wanted. Howie and Ron were smart enough to know that they didn't know what made a good video game. Uh, and they hired people to just experiment and, and, and try, to, try to make a game. Uh, so the way Kubert got started, I mean, I just saw um, a bunch of uh, hexagons that were shaded in such a way they looked like cubes. They were filling the screen, and uh, another programmer, Khan Yabamoto, had them up on his uh, workstation, uh, and he was doing something with them, not using them just, I think, as a placeholder or as a piece of art on the screen. But I thought, you know, if you if you shape that as a pyramid and you dropped a ball on the top, it would have one of two choices which way to bounce. Well, two choices to a programmer is a bit, zero or one. And you put enough bits together, you get a byte. And it occurred to me that with one random byte, I could determine the path of a ball from the top to the bottom. So it was really just a programming exercise for me to learn how to program randomness and gravity. And once I had a ball bouncing on this pyramid, I was like, well, maybe I should have a player character bouncing around. So I had the player character. I, I went to Jeff Lee, the artist, and I said, do you have any characters? Uh, I could use, and he, he put up a bunch of characters that he had come up with, and uh, I was like, I'll use this orange guy here with the big nose. And, you know, Jeff designed that character with the notion of him 
shooting stuff out of his nose. He yeah. thought that would be funny. <laughs> and it, it is funny, but to me, it was too complicated because I, I was too new and I just didn't know how to do that. I was like, maybe, maybe I should keep it simple. You were thinking jumping. Jumping, yeah. I just want to have the guy jump, hop. So uh, I put that in, and uh, and 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 then uh, once Waxman, Ron Waxman, had this habit, like he'd hang around late at night, and he'd sit behind you, like I'd be sitting, and you know I'm just playing around, I'd be working late one night, he would just be sitting behind you, breathing. You could hear him <laughs> breathing, and he always had a cigar. He's smoking a cigar <laughs> and just breathing. You know, it's almost like Darth Vader sitting behind you. But I'm just you know ignoring it. I got used to it, and I was playing around, I had my guy hopping around, the balls are bouncing, and he, Ron goes, what if the colors change when he bounces on a cube? <laughs> I go like, hmm. Suddenly the game had a goal. I was like, okay, that's what it was missing. It was missing a goal, and then that was such a fantastic, I was like, yes. So I implemented that. And, uh, and the whole development of Cubert just continued like that. It was sort of like, what's next? What do we do next? What's the next thing that makes sense yeah um and jeff was a fantastic collaborator i trusted him and his uh his ideas he came up with a, a lot of ideas that end up in the game came up with some that didn't but uh, <laughs> uh and dave feel you know i went to him i needed sounds and you know he he came up with basically the soundscape some of the things were ideas that i had and i said I, you know i want something like this or i want something like that and he would do it and then other things he came up with his own on his own the speech Kubert's speech was Dave Thiel, uh, yeah. you know, basically being annoyed with this uh, speech chip we had on our soundboard. It just, no matter what you made it say, it just sounded terrible. It was very ma ma not down and they, you know, so um, he had the idea of just putting in random phonemes. So instead of actually speaking, it's just literally random sounds coming out of the speech chip, and it's great. And then you know the cartoon balloon and all this stuff. It was just, it all just sort of synergized. Did it test well? It tested very well. Did you have to change anything after the first test? The the thing I changed most was the tuning of it. Uh, and because it was my first game and I didn't really know how to tune a game, most people were telling me it was too hard. But there were things I stuck to my guns with. I, I did make it easier after testing, after focus groups, after in-house testing, just people in the office playing it. I kept making it easier, but there were things I stuck to my guns. Like a lot of people wanted me to change the orientation of the joystick. Like to me, it's absolutely obvious when you look at the pyramid, you have one of two choices to jump uh, if you're at the top or if you're in the middle, you have four choices and they're all diagonals. Yeah. So it makes total sense. But people were like floored by this notion of a joystick that only had four diagonals. And I couldn't understand that. But they were like, no, it's got to be up, down, left, right. And I'm but like, well, look at the play field. You can't go up, down, left, right. So a lot of people pressured me, but I, I stuck to my guns on that. <laughs> you know, right now, and you know, when you play the game, if you're standing anywhere on the edge, you could jump right off the pyramid and die. And a lot of people didn't like that because yeah. they did it. And I thought this is something you're going to learn to not do. Yeah. And it's an added challenge. But a lot of people are like, no, that people are going to jump off and die and they're going to hate the game. Like you, then you put another quarter in. And well, you that's right. Well, that's what happened. And and you don't know if somebody's frustrated. Are they going to come back? Or are they not going to come back? So uh, I didn't want to change it, but I we put it out on test in the arcade, and I watched. I watched people play, and indeed, people did. They came up. Some people literally put in a quarter and just pushed the joystick and jumped off three times in a row, and they walked away. 
going to have it, but that's, that's, I not, said, your, that's not your fault. <laughs> well, it is in a way. I mean, if, if, if nobody, here's the thing. If oh, yeah. nobody plays the game, if people <laughs> put a quarter in a walk away and don't come back, then the game doesn't collect quarters. And if the game doesn't collect quarters, then people don't want to buy it. And if people don't want to buy it, then we can't build it. And then we, as a manufacturer of these games, you know, go out of business. So you, that's what, it's not, it's, it's not a, like a malicious capitalistic yeah. kind of a, yes, these games are designed to suck your quarters. It's not that so much as, you know, we want them to be popular. We want them to, to be played yeah. so that people uh, want to buy them people in the arcades, the arcade owners and distributors want to buy them, and then we can build them, and then we stay in business. So, mm. video games now are mass-produced prior, you know, the, because they're not making entire cabinets. Right. Um, I mean, as far as cabinet production went, did you make, were there uh, numbers of cabinets made, or was it more based on um, people people's interest in buying it? Because um, I can imagine it's, it's just, they're so big, and there's so many parts, like, there's so many parts Involved. Well, I mean, this is this was our business. You know, we, we made pinball machines, and then we made video games. And pinball machines and video games both come in big cabinets. They're costly, so they're not generally designed for consumers. They're designed for a, a particular uh, customer, dis- distributors and um, uh, arcade owners and, and bar owners and, and such. So, uh, you know, the economics of it really weren't any different from pinball, which had been around forever. So they knew that business. Um, but video games, um, you know, they, they, that was the purpose of our business was to sell those cabinets. That's yeah. what we did. We built them and sold them. Now, there were such things as kits. And everybody realized that, you know, if a video game is out there and if the cabinet is out there and the game, so, you know, suddenly becomes, you know, it's, it's, it's lived through its life cycle. So now people aren't playing it so much. It would be nice if we could put another game in that same cabinet. So you don't have to supply the cabinet. You can supply a new marquee, some new artwork, a new control panel, maybe a new board, or maybe just the ROMs mm-hmm. in a board. And you know, we, we could still sell it and make a profit, but it would be a lot cheaper than buying a whole cabinet, yeah. and that would make it attractive to people who already own arcades. So then there became a kit market, and that became a whole nother, you know, we still needed and wanted to sell full units. So then we would, you know, design different cabinets for different games. Uh, sometimes we designed sit-down cabinets, like Mach 3 was a flying game. We had a cockpit-style cabinet. We also had those uh, cocktail cabinets. I don't know if you remember those. Uh, for bars, it was basically a, a small oh, yeah. thing with a flat glass top and the monitor facing up. So you would play head-to-head if you were playing two-player, or you yeah. could just sit down and play. And we call those cocktail tables. Yesterday, John Newcomer, who made Joust, he, he joined us for lunch yesterday, mm-hmm. which was amazing. You surprised the crap out of me yesterday <laughs> with your message. You're like, I hope that, you were like, I hope it's okay. And I was like, I would, never in a million years did I say, no, definitely not. <laughs> um, but he had a really good question for you yesterday. He asked, you know, the, in Hubert, when you die, you get that tapping sound, right. you know, and... How did you guys come up with that? Right. Yes, the knocker. So this was the idea of a guy named Rick Ty, and he was one of our engineering technicians. And, you know, the game had been in development. It was pretty far along, and he he was playing it, and he said, you know what would be cool? And by the way, a lot of people said that to me a lot while I was developing it. (laughs) Everybody had an idea. So, uh, you know, uh, I was kind of the filter 
to say, yes, this is a good idea, no, this is not a good idea, but he came to me and said, you know what would be cool is if you had a pinball knocker, it's a standard item in a pinball machine that just make it, it's a little piston that pushes against the end of the wood of the cabinet make a knocking sound. He said, well, if you had, because Kubert falls off the pyramid, he goes, you know, if you had a knocker down there that went off when he, like, landed. And I thought, that's a pretty cool idea. So we put it in, and we tried it, and um, it, uh, I didn't like the sound of it, because it sounded too much like a knock, it, it, like knocking on the door. And I thought, what we really want is the sound of, like, a, a body, like, like a, a sack of potatoes hitting, yeah, a thud. So uh, we thought about it, and um, we thought, okay, well, maybe if we put a little piece of foam, and this might have been Rick's idea, too, to put a little piece of foam okay. right at the spot where the knocker hits the wood to sort of soften the sound a little bit. We tried it, and it sounded fantastic. <laughs> it was amazing. I loved the sound. It was, like, perfect. Uh, and it really was like this illusion because he goes, and then it just sounds like a body is hitting the bottom of the cabinet. Uh, we really got a kick out of it. <laughs> so we went to management. We said, oh, this is, we, we got to have this. Yeah. And they said, well, we can put the knocker in, but, uh, you know, putting that piece of foam, it's just, a, it's very labor intensive because you got to put it right in the right spot. And it's hard to do and probably add like $15 to the cost of the game. We're not going to do it. So they said no, but it did go out with the knocker. And people, do, do you have a lot of people comment on the, on the knock? Oh, yeah, always, even from the very beginning. People love that feature. People <laughs> love that because you're not expecting it. You don't expect something like that. So it was a, 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 a bit of a surprise. Would you say Qbert is your favorite game you got to develop? Or Wow, that that's, I that's I a tough one. It's, it, it may be your most famous game, but that doesn't mean it has to be the, your favorite that's game. True, you that's know? true, that's true. I would say it probably is not. I, I think maybe Us versus Them yeah. uh, is my favorite game. Uh, Us versus Them was a Laserdisc game that uh, unfortunately suffered from, you know, it, it came out right as the Laserdisc craze crashed. And Laserdiscs were discovered to not be too uh, uh, reliable in the field. And uh, it's unfortunate because it tested through the roof. Uh, I was very proud of this game. All the guys that worked on it, we were all very proud of it. It was a bit of a groundbreaking game. And if you look at it today, uh, you know, it had things like cutscenes with live actors. Mm -hmm. Uh, it had different points of view at each level. You were, you know, the camera was a different point of view, with filmed backgrounds and uh, uh, just a great variety of gameplay. I think it was a very engaging game. And like I said, it tested great. They were Gottlieb was poised to build the shit out of these things, and then this big crash happened, and suddenly nobody wanted a laserdisc game because they just weren't reliable in the field. So uh, I think I'm most proud of that game. I mean, I am certainly proud of Qbert. Um, uh, Us versus Them is probably the game I'm most proud of. Yeah. How about least proud of? Oh, that's <laughs> a tough one. I, I or think not to disparage on any project. No, of but... course not. Of course not. Um, I made in my career seven arcade games. Yeah. And I think maybe the probably the one I'm I wouldn't say the least proud but maybe the most disappointed with there you go. was uh, exterminator um, exterminator and Qbert are probably the two games that I can take the most personal credit for that they were my vision I would say yeah. you know because all the other games I did were either somebody else's idea or collaborating with people you know uh, us versus them the concept came from Dennis Nordman um, Lotto Fun was a redemption game, and that was I just you know, Harry Rubin had the idea, and I just basically implemented it. Joust Two was J 
John Newcomer. Um, so I think uh, Exterminator, I was disappointed in because it just a, a sort of a lot of things conspired to make it fail. And I think the idea of it was sound, but it just, it didn't, it didn't work out. And, you know, I, I guess I'm, I'm most disappointed. I actually played it. It's such a rare game. I think they made <laughs> 250 cabinets, so that's, that's it? all, yeah. It's a long story. There were, there were some noise problems with the hardware, and, the, and the, we had engineered or had hired a company to engineer a new controller. It was, it, it's the controller just needed to do like everything. It needed to rotate. It was a joystick that needed to rotate with a thumb button, but also needed to uh, move in, in all directions. And Anyway, it was, it was a lot, but uh, there were problems with the original engineering of that, and all these problems got solved, but too late. It's like we, you know, they, they sort of rushed it out and they didn't fix the problems first and it just then got a bad reputation. But I played the game at a show like a year ago and I was like, oh, this game isn't so bad. You know, the actual fun of it, I was actually like, oh, well, it's pretty cool. So I, it's not that I'm the least proud of it. I think I'm just the most disappointed. And then, so you said seven games you can credit. Yeah. Is that including USSA? Or no, I didn't including? include that because that never got released. So... Yeah, USSA was this uh, game that John Newcomer and I were working on. It was going to be... The you were working at Williams at this time? This was at Williams, yeah. And um, Eugene Jarvis had been gone but came back, and under his tutelage we developed the 256-color uh, arcade system, which was a first of its kind. And it was a small staff back then because after the crash of 84, a lot of people either quit or were let go, and uh, I was like hired after that at Williams. And uh, so there was just enough for two teams. So two teams started to develop separate games. John Newcomer and I were developing USSA, which is a, an overhead view tank game, just like the classic tank game, but with photorealistic graphics. Yeah. And, um, uh, and, and, well, the difference was that the player was driving a 4 by 4 truck with a missile launcher in the yeah. flatbed. And uh, once you launched a missile, and you drove the truck with a steering wheel, but once you launched the missile, you steered the missile with the steering wheel. I, I thought it was an awesome game. I really enjoyed it, and it looked fantastic. Um, you said John, John went and bought models. John bought all of these model kits <laughs> of, like, suburban homes, 7-Eleven, McDonald's, and he built these. He painted these. They looked absolutely real and flawless, and then we shot them with a video camera from above, and then composited them into a suburban landscape. We, we shot, like, you know, grass textures and road textures. And, uh, and you know, John was the artist for that game. He created all this art, looked fantastic. And I was the programmer. And together we designed it. So it was, uh, it, we were very proud of it. But unfortunately, the, the, there were two teams working at the same time. The other team was Eugene Jarvis and uh, Jack Hager and George Petro, and they were making a game that became NARC. Wow. There you and, go. <laughs> and at some point, you know, USSA was canceled, and so it never saw the light of day. Um, so you said that you got hired at Williams kind of in the midst of the craft? Well, you no, know, it was one thing after another. It was a few things, actually. So, I mean, Gottlieb... Uh, just unique to Gottlieb was the fact that I think, you know, Howie and Ron's method of just hiring a lot of people and letting them loose worked with a few games, but a, there was a lot of dead weight. There were a lot of people there who were not producing games and were not producing releasable games. So that was a problem. At this point, was pinball still a viable 
markets or, no. or had it really shifted to arcade? Captain? Pinball was pretty much dead. I mean, not dead, like literally dead, but it, it had scaled back. They had scaled back their pinball production so much for video. And uh, I think there was a bit of a resentment from the pinball. I mean, was there any divisiveness between the divisions at all? <laughs> <laughs> Not the, to get messy. No, but. no, no. It's a, actually, <laughs> this is a story I love telling. I love telling the story because I think it's kind of funny. We were in, you know, we were isolated over in Bensonville, and we all were pinball players. We idolized these pinball designers. You know, we just thought they were amazing. And so when we heard we were going to be moving into North Lake, we were all excited. We were like, okay, we're going to be side by side these pinball designers that we think are fantastic. So we move in. Management does nothing in the way of mixing us together, throwing a party, throwing a, get a gathering, introducing us, nothing. We literally show up one day in this big area that I think used to be the pinball area, <laughs> and they were sort of pushed back into a corner or smaller area. Oh, no. Because, you know, from the pinball designer's point of view, video was the golden child and they were being, you know, they were the ugly stepsister. And I think they were very resentful about that. Uh, they were also resentful that they weren't given the opportunity, I think, for them themselves to start making some video games. I think they would have liked to have had that opportunity, but management didn't allow it. That's, I mean, and, and that's interesting because you would think that with their experience already, I mean... Well, I guess management did not think that designing a pinball game, which is mechanical, is the same skill as designing a video game, That's which true. I think is true, you know. But anyway, that's not to say they couldn't do it. Anyway, they mixed us all together, and we are just getting the stink eye from all these people. We're looking at these people, and we're smiling like, hi, and they're like... <laughs> so it was, it was really funny, but, uh, and management did nothing, nothing to help that situation. But I think over time... As they got to know us and we got to know them, it all sort of worked itself out, and we were we were very harmonious. I mean, we did mutually uh, respect each other. For people who don't know that there was quote a video game crash mm -hmm. in the eighties, I mean, yeah. what 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 propelled that and, and really forced a market crash? <clears throat> well, that size? the way I see it, there were two factors. Okay, mm -hmm. one was the uh, growth of the industry. It was it grew so fast, so many arcades springing up that needed product and then so many manufacturers who were building product and you know for a while it was great and they it could sustain that growth because the product was good and video games were new and everything you know people were playing them what happened was you know so many people jumped on the bandwagon and the need was so great that suddenly a lot of these games coming out were not good and the players weren't playing them they, so you, now you have, all this, uh, you have all this real estate in all these arcades filled with games that maybe you're not collecting. Well, and then you've got, you've got to pay for real estate if you're an arcade owner. And if your games aren't collecting, you fold or go out of business or whatever. And so it, it just became a glut of games. And it just, I think it just grew too fast. It didn't grow and stabilize as it should have. And, and I think the second factor was the Laserdisc. You know, I think that was a small part of it was... You know, everybody got really excited about Laserdisc games and thought this was the future, and then it just turned out to be a, a fad because, you know, it, all of these games, yeah. It proved unreliable. Yeah, they for, proved unreliable in the field. Because what, what did you say? People would hit, they would they yeah. hit the side of the machine. Right. Yeah, it's, you know, because a, a Laserdisc player is, is not that much different from a record player. It's got a stylus, and it's reading the disc. 
And if you smash the cabinet, the, the stylus would just jerk. You would lose sync. The game would, would not know where you are in the laser disc, and, and it just did, then it didn't know what to do. The game would go wonky. The, the people would complain and ask for their money back. And when people realized that you could do that, then I think you know people would play a game for like twenty minutes and then smack, you know bang the side of the cabinet and say, "Give me my money back." So yeah. it just it was not a good thing for the industry. So I think you know common and, and I think a lot of manufacturers invested a lot of money in, in laser discs. So that became a thing. So I think the combination of those two things formed the crash in 1984, and a lot of uh, I think a lot of smaller companies folded. It hurt a lot of. Uh, the bigger, you know, uh, manufacturers. and yeah. uh, But the thing about the pinball industry is that it has always had its ups and downs. So these companies who've been doing pinball for years, they knew how to scale back the production line. They knew, I mean, they might have to lay people off, but they just knew how to survive yeah. uh, with, with smaller productions. And they were very good at that. And so they, they, you know, withstood. Now Gottlieb, to talk about Gottlieb in particular, Gottlieb was bought by Columbia. Columbia was then bought by Coca-Cola. And I don't think Coca-Cola really understood the pinball industry or really wanted a pinball company when they bought Columbia, I mean, uh, yeah, when they bought Columbia Pictures, I don't think they wanted a pinball company. So I'm not sure when the writing on the wall happened, but uh, some stuff was happening behind the scenes. We eventually, even though we were doing pretty well, we had, we did have the problem with the uh, distributor's lawsuit after the, the, the Laserdisc problem, but uh, other than that, we had had Cubert was a hit game, and um, um, Mach 3 was a huge hit game. We had had some lesser hits, you know, uh, there was uh, Mad Planets and Three Stooges. Uh, so we had produced other games, but uh, it was like September, I think, of 1984. We just walked into the office one day, completely surprised to hear that we, we were closed. That was what they said. We are closed. We are closed. Ladies and I think Ron Waxman walked out into the big area where all of our cubicles were, and he said, ladies and gentlemen, we are closed for business. Yeah. Iconic. Yeah. <laughs> Can't yeah. forget that. Well, it was a shock. And the thing is, we all knew something was up. We didn't know what. It was, it was a, just a sort of a pall over the company for, for a few weeks. Because things, you know, it was just a tension that we all felt, and we didn't understand it. Um, and then, then we closed. How long after that did you start working at Williams? Uh, it was like a year and a couple of months. Uh, so it was early, I think it was like March of 1986. So I think September 1984 to March of 1986, I actually had another job out of the game industry. Okay. Yeah. Does that remind you why you wanted to, or did you want, I mean, how did you work for Williams then if you had another job out of the industry? What took you back? <clears throat> well, you know, that's kind of an interesting story too. Cause that, so <laughs> the day we were let go, the yeah. day we closed, uh, part of the processing we went through was placement. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, they, they, they tried to uh, give us leads on, on other jobs. And I don't know how this happened, but somehow some headhunter knew, found out that we were closing. And so all of our phones were ringing with headhunters calling and saying, we'd like to place you here. We'd like to place you here. And there was this one place called Data Logics in uh, downtown Chicago, a River North section of downtown. And uh, they were hiring. They were hiring graphics programmers, and that's what we were now. So um, me and one other guy from uh, Gottlieb, Neil Bernstein, who had programmed Cubert's Cubes, yeah. the sequel to Cubert that I had nothing to do with, he, <laughs> he, uh, he got the job and, and told me about it. A uh, headhunter called me. I, I took that job, and, and it, was a, it was a fun job. There was a guy from Williams who worked there also. 
Ken Lance. So uh, there were a bunch of us uh, sort of former video game guys there. The interesting thing is about a year later, or yeah, a little over a year later, I got a phone call from another headhunter saying, hey, would you like to go back to video games? Williams is looking to hire. And I said, yes, absolutely. And, and I took, so I, I started Williams. I found out later that it was the same headhunter. Really? Using a different name. Because <laughs> that's a little sketchy what he was doing there. Absolutely. But uh, it was the same, the same headhunter who got me into data logics, got me out of data logics. <laughs> it's kind of funny. And did you do anything with home consoles? Or was it really just arcade? <clears throat> Only arcade until I moved to California. So what was that? I left the I left the arc, uh, I left the arcade industry in 1990. Well, 1995, uh, I left Williams and came to California, on and off. I was I actually kind of went back and forth for a year and a half, and Williams uh, was very lovely. Uh, the manager guy there, Paul Desalt, was very kind to let me continue to develop WTARG, my digitization system. Yeah. So I continued to develop that sort of on the sly, you know, just a few hours a week. Uh, to give me a little bit of money while I was basically in Los Angeles scoping out that town for a move. Yeah. And um, so I did that for about a year and a half, and then I got hired by Disney. Disney Interactive okay. hired me and uh, uh, actually uh, paid for the move. So uh, we relocated, my family relocated from Chicago to Los Angeles, and I started making home games uh, for Disney. Although I say making home games, although... I was hired because they thought they were going to be making games in-house. But between the time I was hired and the time I moved there, there was a complete management shift. And uh, they decided that they weren't going to make in-house games. So actually what I worked on at Disney were tools, software tools for uh, art creation and things like that. Um, But I did eventually uh, work on a few titles um, in some capacity. I think it was a Mulan Story Studio and... uh, Tarzan Activity Center. I didn't realize that you had worked for Disney Interactive, though. Mm-hmm. For four years. And then I became an Imagineer. Oh, wow. Yeah, the entire... Now we're in California, the yeah. Anaheim? Oh. Not Anaheim, no. Uh, Disney's uh, Disney Interactive was in Glendale. They had a campus in Glendale. So they had a bunch of buildings in, in, all in the same area. Not too far from the studio. Like, we would go have lunch at the commissary on the Disney lot, <laughs> which was nice. It was like maybe a mile, mile and a half away. Uh, but... Um, we were in a building, oh, I was going to say, all the four years I was working for Disney Interactive, there were layoffs, like, every six months. Really? It was a very mm, over, it was tumultuous, but it was, like, overstuffed. There were, like, I don't like 500 employees or something when I started there. It was way too much. They had hired all this. They thought oh. they had all this money to spend, and they pissed away hundreds of millions of dollars. Then there was a management change. So there were all these layoffs. Then there was a management change. So the top management got kicked out. New people came in. Uh, and they were more fiscally responsive. But even so, in 2000, I heard there was another... I survived every layoff. I don't even know how. But uh, in 2000, there was another layoff, and I was told I probably would not be surviving that layoff. And so uh, the opportunity came up to transfer to Imagineering. And that was a dream of mine. I I loved the idea of Imagineering. Uh, I loved Disney theme parks, and I was like, oh, my God, to, to be able to work on theme park rides, to me, was, you know, the ultimate. Sadly, that is not what I was working on. The, the division or the department of uh, Imagineering I went to 
division that was working on an online uh, multiplayer, massive multiplayer online game called Toontown. And, I played Toontown. Yeah, and I Toontown it, like, still is sort of being, I, I, I think Disney you know, gave it off to... to uh, I think the server shut down like within the last year. Oh, is it's, that right? It was very, maybe two years, it's very recent that, uh-huh. the, that the servers closed down, but it was a big deal when they did because a lot of people were like, I played Toontown my whole childhood. It was the, oh, first, wow. it was the first multiplayer game I ever played. You uh-huh. know, my parents would let me play. So. Well, I didn't last there very long. Unfortunately, I mean, they were really wonderful people, but I, they didn't give me anything to do. So like, I, was, I, I was hired. I was like, well, what should I do? Oh, just read some stuff. Read up on this stuff <laughs> and read up on and then, you know, whatever. And, and I literally spent weeks with nothing to do. And I don't work well that way. I really kind of need to have a goal. Yeah. So, you know, set me a goal. Give me a project. And they, just did, and they were always busy with a deadline or something. And so it was like, oh, we'll, we'll get to you tomorrow. Just do, you know, whatever you want. And I literally didn't do much while I was there. And I did not like that. I was very bored. And uh, there was one project they gave me I needed to port... Uh, something that was, um, I needed to, to port, like, I guess, a library of graphics functions to uh, DirectX, and, and, and that took me, like, three weeks to do, so, it, it, you know, but I was there for four months, and that three weeks was the only time I felt like I was busy and had a goal, and eventually I just quit. I, I just couldn't handle it. It was just not what I wanted, and then I had a variety of other games in the game industry. I went to mostly small studios. And then uh, went out of the game industry. I, I got myself a job at uh, ILM, Industrial Light and Magic. Very excited to work there. Yeah. Uh, and the interesting thing about that is they were located in San Francisco, but I was located in Los Angeles, but they were looking for somebody in Los Angeles. Because right. they had developed Previs software, uh, Previs being pre-visualization for movies, which is a fancy way of saying sort of like high-tech storyboarding with, with animation, mm-hmm. basically storyboarding with animation. And so they developed a f- software for that, and they wanted to uh, maybe have people down in L.A. start using that software, and they wanted somebody local to be the technical liaison. So uh, that's what I did. Um, it didn't work out the way they thought. They did one project, and uh, they didn't have the resources to be responsive to the needs of the special effects company. Like yeah. the, They would request a lot of changes, and even though ILM tried to, to make as many changes as they could, you know, it was really kind of a workflow thing. ILM does a certain type of workflow, and the program was designed for that. The, the company, the special effects house that was using it in L.A. had a different workflow, and it really wasn't conducive to their workflow. So it didn't really work out. Uh, and then I ended up staying on at ILM for a while um, and doing some software development off-site, but... Eventually, they let me go. They yeah. they laid me off, and I I knew it was coming. It was it was a uh, it was a great time working there. I got no regrets. Uh, a few years later, when Disney bought Lucasfilm, they disbanded the whole R and D department at ILM. So I would have been let go then anyway. So. <laughs> and you mentioned a little bit ago your digitization system, and I'm not your your digitization, yeah. mm-hmm. digitization system. Right. I know it's hard to say. Yeah, very much so. I don't know. Say how five you times fast. Did, no. Yeah. No, no. Um, and uh, I mean, that system was used in a lot of. I mean, they're pretty famous games: Mortal yeah. Kombat, the NBA Live, Jam, Jam series. NBA Jam series, Mortal Kombat. And, and how um, did that? I mean, how did that work? What, what did what did it do? Well, you know, I was fascinated with the idea of digitizing, you know, video images, 
as soon as the first digitizers came on the market, which was like 1980, I guess 1986, maybe 1985, uh, and they were crude and they were difficult to use, but I started playing with them at Williams just to see, really to see if there was something valid in them. But really, when the, the, the turning point that made them actually practical and usable was a, a thing called the Targa board that came out around 1986, I think. It was a PC board. You, you went into a slot in your PC, and you could plug a, a, a color video camera into it, and it would just grab a frame like that. You could, whatever you're pointing the camera at would grab a frame, and you would have a true color image that frame. And I was like, okay, well, we, we can use this. The, 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 the other thing about that board that was fantastic was it came with a software developer kit, which means that I could write a piece of software that could talk to that board and control that board. That was really the thing that made it usable. So uh, I created a piece of software called WTARG. I think the W sta stood for Williams, yeah. Williams Targa. Uh, and, uh, and I started you know, creating a way to grab digitized images. And it was very, yeah, it was artist intensive. So in order to get um, motion, mm -hmm. you had to videotape somebody with like a VHS camera. <laughs> and then you have to play that videotape and pause the videotape. You have to freeze frame the videotape. And I don't know if you've ever tried doing that. You get a lot of noise and jittery. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult. And then you'd, you'd grab that thing and you'd get some image. And then you would have to strip out manually all of the background with some art tool. And, uh, and you had to do that for literally every frame of animation you wanted. And, you know, the, the image, like I said, was noisy, so you'd have to clean up the image, and it, it was very artist-intensive. But I continued to develop that uh, until I left, and I left it in a state. It was still not that great when I quit Williams after USSA. And then when I came back three years later for Terminator 2, I was like stunned to find they're still using the same system. Yeah. It's crazy. And, and the thing is, the computers had gotten faster. I just assumed somebody would be, you know, continuing to improve that system. Nobody had touched it. So uh, I got the latest Targa board, which now had chroma key built in. Chroma key, of course, you know, strips out the background automatically. You don't have to do anything. Uh, and like I said, computers were faster, memory was more plentiful, so I was able to grab more images in real time and do a lot more things with them to facilitate getting like a whole animation. So it got to the point where like Revolution X with Aerosmith, we could literally, and, and, and Williams had designed, Jack Hager had a, a hand in designing this blue screen studio. Yeah. And so we got cameras, great cameras, lighting, and a computer setup. We could point a camera at Aerosmith, you know, Steven Tyler at a microphone doing a kick or some move, and we could literally, in real time, grab, you know, 15, 20 frames of that, strip out the background, and create a palette for it automatically, yeah. and put it on our hardware in like a minute or two. So it was a really cool system. It was a great system. I feel like I've picked your brain pretty I've told thoroughly. you everything. There's no, there's <laughs> nothing left. There's nothing left to say. I do just want to say thank you, though, because although <laughs> I, I just think it's very important because I would have never been able to imagine that I would have the opportunity to sit down and talk to you. Mm. Um, and it's so, it, 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 for me, it feels a lot like an honor. Mm -hmm. um, well, I thank you for saying that. It's very <laughs> kind of you. Um, it doesn't feel, you know, like it should be an honor for you to talk to me, but, <laughs> but thank you for feeling that way. Yeah. <laughs> and I just think that your 
perspective is just really important because the industry is continuing to change. It always will. It always has. Mm -hmm. I mean, you you were involved in a big shift at that time with arcade. And, yeah. Um, it was. A, it was. Uh, you know, I'm certainly grateful. It, uh, so much of it was just being at the right place at the right time. I think, as it is frequently with people who you know, who are are in a situation where they've done something to be remembered for. It's just really just luck in a way. Um, but uh, I'm very grateful to have had that opportunity. And, and yes, it is a little strange still to, to, to have the attention, you know, uh, lavished on me for something I did so long ago. But uh, it's very gratifying, and I'm grateful. Are you working on anything now? Uh, I still do consulting and, and late software consulting. And lately I've, I've been doing some work for Sony uh, doing trophies for their old PS2 games. Oh. Um, on the PS4, adding trophies. So it, it's interesting, really interesting work because I call it forensic computing because I don't have the source code. So oh. I have assembly code and uh, sometimes I have a symbol map, a symbol table, uh, and from that I have to figure out how to detect something happening in the game. Uh, and it's, I've, I've become quite good at it. And it, it, it was a challenge at first, um, you know, because first of all, it's an assembly language that I'd never used. I never used. It's in MIPS. The PS2 uses MIPS, uh, and I'd never done. I'd never coded in MIPS, so I had to learn that assembly language. So going back to an assembly language after all these years was was fun and exciting. And, yeah. Uh, and again, just the, it, it really is like a puzzle, like doing detective work. You know, what is this function doing? How can I get in? You know, where is this? Where is the score stored? If I want to detect a certain score or a certain level, how do I do that? Yeah. Um, you're it's, just like dissecting the code. That's much. right. That's right. And it's it's been it's been very fun. Um, yeah. Are that. you acting? I, mean, I know you you've been an actor. I mean, you've, mm -hmm. you've played in a, a quite a few shows: Criminal Minds, ER. Mm. Uh, what was some other ones? Uh, the Middle, yeah. Young and the Restless, uh, General Hospital, LAX House. House. That's true. Had a scene with LL Cool J. <laughs> LL Cool J was right up in my face and on House, right? Are you, uh, are you going to be in anything soon, or are you, you know? Um, no, not, at this point, I do not know. There, there, there's a play that I might be doing later this year, but okay. I'm not entirely sure yet. Um, and I also do sound design for theater, and there's a sound design I'm doing for a play called The 39 Steps okay. uh, in Los Angeles uh, that's being done by the Actors Co-op, a fantastic theater company. They do great work. And um, so I'm looking forward to that. In fact, I'll get started on that as soon as I get back to L.A., well, thank you so much for talking to me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Anytime. <laughs> I'm probably going to pick your brain for Oh. All right. So that was this week's episode of Cake Bites. Thank you all so much for taking the time to listen. I had such a great time sitting down and talking to Warren, and I'm really happy I got to share that with all of y'all. I've got some pretty cool audio. It's not the most quality, but I got to sit down with Warren Davis and John Newcomer, among other people, and they let me record the conversation. And that includes a guest appearance by Randy Pitchford, who was from Gearbox, or was, I mean, is the current CEO of Gearbox. That came because he really wanted to come and take the time to sit with Warren and John together. So I'll be editing the audio from that experience I got to have, and I'll be posting that for my patrons on Patreon, and I'm going to take this time to say thank you and welcome to my newest patron, Jonathan. 
I'm really excited to add you to the small list of patrons at the moment, but thank you so much for supporting the show. It means the world to me. You can find Cake Bites on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and uh, please be sure to subscribe and review the show uh, wherever you're listening to it at. Uh, I, I believe that the show is on most podcast directories, so... Hopefully you can find the show. If you can't, please let me know, and I will do my best to get the show on your preferred app. Um, And I'll see you guys next week.